You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. This is Professor Robert D'Agostino with Do Facts Matter? And, of course, we know in this time and age, facts don't seem to make much difference at all. Uh, And I uh, always point out uh, some of the nonsense that's being spouted about uh, masks and COVID-19 and from Fauci, who changes, uh, seems to change his view almost daily about what you should or shouldn't do. But uh, at least uh, the CDC has finally partially relieved this mask mandate. I mean, the worst advice ever given, of course, was shelter in place. Indoors is the worst place. But after a little, look, I had a comment on that because of what's going on. But right now, uh, I want to introduce my guest. My, I have a guest today is Ellis Washington. And Ellis Washington graduated uh, from John Marshall Law School in 1994. Uh, he is uh, an essay, an author, and we're going to talk about one of his books and some of his views. I, I was uh, telling uh, Ellis at uh, lunch today that I had... Um, uh, remembered his book, and I'd used his book over the years, uh, called Devil is in the Details, and if he was written in 1999, but it reads like a prophecy about what's going on today. Uh, Ellis, tell us a little bit about yourself uh, before I ask you your first question. Thank you, Professor D'Agostino. I'm honored to be on this uh, radio program, America's Web Radio. Well, just a brief uh, summary of who I am. I uh, from um, I was born in Detroit in the early '60s, and um, from my earliest memory, I've been kind of an iconoclast and just kind of went against the grain. And so uh, I think it probably has something to do with my mom taking me to the library at a really early age and learning to read at the library and kind of bypassing the the public school system, so to speak. So I graduated from um, high school in the late 70s, Cass Technical High in Detroit, went to um, DePaul University and graduated from there with a degree in education and a minor in history in 1983. From there, I taught in public schools for about two years. Both my parents are are teachers. I have uh, education in my background going back to the probably the early 30s in my family. So education is kind of in my DNA. So after two years in the public school, I went to University of Michigan, where I was majoring in music at that time. I played French horn, classically, I'm a classical trained musician. I was initially trying to become an orchestral musician and um, did that for a while, actually, after I graduated uh, graduated about a year and a half, got my master's degree in, in music at University of Michigan, and went on to play principal, assistant principal, French horn, in an orchestra in Mexico, Toluca, which is the capital of the state of Mexico. Did that for about a year. Came back, went to Harvard, graduate school studying, uh, was working on a PhD in history there, and later found out that I was going to school with one future president named Barack Obama. And I actually, uh, ironically, during that time after my first year there, I took some classes in the law in 1989 at the behest of my best friend there. And uh, one of my teachers was uh, Professor uh, Randall Kennedy, who is a well-known civil rights uh, scholar and very prolific author. Of course, Randall Kennedy was... uh 
wasn't he involved with the critical studies movement? Yes, exactly. He was one of the, probably one of the founding members of that big, big critical studies. Uh, I remember person. the story about Randall Kennedy was uh, complaining that the students at Harvard, when they decided who their favorite teachers were, would uh, invariably choose these. Uh, but abusive conservative professors, right? And rather than him, who who pandered not only to the students but to everybody else, and he couldn't understand why his pandering didn't make him more popular. Exactly. Yeah. He he was one of those professors. I mean, just looking back at him, I mean, and I had to get special because I was a graduate student in, in history. Uh, I don't know how it is now, but back in those days, in order to kind of get interest, interest in the law, I want to take a couple of classes. I had to get special permission from the dean, who I believe then, then was a, a guy named Clark. And he gave me permission after talking to me. And my first class was with Randall Kennedy, but I didn't really want to study with him. There was another professor there that was much more beloved of the students. You, you, this name might uh, ring a bell. What's his name? He passed away now. He taught a class in... Um, called race racism God, on it. I can't think of his name right now but it, it, it'll come back to me and I know this name will ring a bell with you but it, he was kind of like always playing second fiddle to, to this guy and um this guy was really a legend. He he had a lot of uh, his classes were always packed, and so that's why I couldn't take his class. So I kind of took Randall Kennedy's class as a consolation prize. But then, uh, just finishing my little bio uh, summary, after that uh, year, I took about a year, you know, studying, trying to get into law school, and I finally got into uh, a school in, in Michigan, uh, John Marshall, I'm sorry, uh, Thomas Cooley, and then after a year there I transferred to, to John Marshall in 1992, where after two years there I got got my degree in 94. So since during that time, last 30 years or so, I've been writing books and essays uh, on various aspects of history, law, uh, legal philosophy, political theory, uh, you name it. And all yeah. this brings me to the que- uh, first question, because uh, one of the books that I have read, and and I need to reread it again, okay. but I've, I've used it. It's called <clears throat> a book, uh, 1999, The Devil is in the Details, Essays on Law, Race, Politics, and Religion. And this is a very interesting book because not only are the essays thought-provoking, but they're prophetic. Uh, there's some things you wrote in here that I said, well, my goodness, this has come, come true, unfortunately. And, uh, and, and uh, you really uh, – I, I don't know how successful the book was uh, in sales, or, but it should be successful. It, it really uh, – uh, a book I've quoted from over the years as a professor. And one of the things, uh, most interesting essays that, that in this book is black or black, uh, capital B or small b. And what is that all about? Well, thank you, uh, Professor Degasin, for asking me that question. It, it brings up an interesting story. I'm sure I'm not sure if I ever told you this, but I hope you like it and your readership will find it uh, unique. One of the words that I kind of use to define myself, going back to my earliest years as a child of three, four, five years old, is I'm an iconoclast. What that word? You don't hear that word too much. An iconoclast literally means somebody who hates icons. In other words, you, you you're an unconventional thinker. You're a critical thinker. You hate going along with convention, with with you know uh, swimming downstream with the crowd. You like to swim against uh, uh, upstream. So that's how I've always been. And one of the things I did when I was uh, at Harvard and wanted to get some some, some, uh, some grounding in the law, I said, well, 
summer uh, summer's coming up. I need to maybe I can get an internship with somebody. And I went back to my old alma mater, University of Michigan, during uh, winter, spring, uh, Christmas break. And I looked on a job board, and there was two jobs available. Uh, one was uh, uh, to uh, do legal research with a, a, a law professor at University of Michigan. Another one was for the law review. Well, I didn't know about the law review. I don't know what the protocol is. I applied to both. Didn't get the first one, but I did, ironically, get the second one. Literally, I got on the law review off, off the streets. Well, from that... I started looking at law reviews, uh, uh, you know, doing um, research on uh, law reviews that were going to be published by by different scholars around the, the country. And I learned every time they were speaking about blacks or my people, I'm, I'm black, it was always in a lower case, and that bothered me. And so I decided to, during that time on a law review, write my own kind of uh, draft of, of why I thought this was wrong and did research that it wasn't always this way. Earlier scholarship had it capitalized, and even a scholar like um, uh, W.E.B. Du Bois talked about this, like, you know, over 100 years ago in, 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 in his scholarship. And so this was a, a, a issue that seemed like it was a minor point, but if you in my view, marginalize people, a whole race of people, by giving them a lowercase. And if you're speaking about like Hispanics, that's going to be capital H. If you talk about Asians, that's generally a like capital A. And uh, but then other people will say, "Well, whites is not capitalized." Well, that's true. But you all are the race that controls everything, and so whether you're capitalized or not doesn't matter. You're still running everything. But blacks, we've been historically marginalized race, and while you Put us in a lower case, it just seems to just stick the knife in our back even as we go into the 21st century. And so that's why. Uh, we're of course, uh, Ellis, um, nowadays, as far as running things, you'd, if you came from Mars, you would think the homosexual community is running everything. There nowadays. you go. Right, right. Uh, LBQ, whatever it is. <laughs> yeah, see, that didn't exist back then. No, right. <laughs> so, exactly. So, yes. yeah, back then, no question, uh, mm-hmm. the. Uh, the Anglo-Saxon white community was running everything until they ceded ground in the 60s out of guilt for the way they treated blacks. And so they, I think that's the real reason that they they kind of withdrew from the intellectual leadership of this country. And it, then the fight came between uh, the, the Catholics, the rise of the Catholics, yes. uh, intellectuals, and in more importantly, the rise of the Jewish intellectuals, who unfortunately in those days were almost all left-wingers. Yes. Yes. And uh, now we have, you know, people like David Horowitz and, uh, and Dennis Prager and Mark Levin, uh, solid people. But uh, the Jewish leadership then was primarily way left, exactly, and, and, and that was for historic reasons. After yes. all, they were the, the the sons and daughters of uh, Jews who had come from Russia, and they were persecuted, and some of the persecution was by the Russian Orthodox Church. So they blamed it on Christians in general. But anyway, let's get back to to this whole reason, and I think it's an interesting interesting reason why why you're for capital B for blacks. And you're right; I didn't think about it until I read your essay about. Asians and and Hispanics nowadays Hispanics is always yes. a, a capital H. Yes, exactly, and it, it goes back to legitimacy, and that's why the subtitle of my article is "Black Lowercase B or Black Capital B: A Plea for Legitimacy in Legal Scholarship." And I took my arguments all the way up to the Supreme Court, actually, and I got a response. I mean, this is, I mean, not as a court case, but in letters and sending the manuscript and then later the book 
two various members of the Supreme Court. Like I say, I'm an iconoclast. I'm kind of crazy. How can a ghetto boy from Detroit thinking, you know, you can go to the Supreme Court and, and get any kind of uh, answer or anything? But I did, and I got an answer. And uh, one of the judges, uh, Sandra Day O'Connor, the first woman to sit on the Supreme Court, she had one of her, I guess, clerks send me a rather detailed letter. i got to find that letter. I'm sure I have it in my file somewhere, arguing that, you know, uh, well, white's not capitalized, and we, the Supreme Court, we have our rule book, and we don't capitalize it. And so I was a little bit disheartened. And then she didn't really address any of my substantive arguments. And I, I've learned from law, from people like my mentor here, Professor D'Agostino, is when somebody doesn't address any of your points or marginalize them or sets up, uh, you know, straw man or red herrings, those are telltale signs that they don't really have a good argument, you know. And so I didn't take it as a, a big loss. I was actually kind of honored that she she replied. I'm sorry that, that, that I couldn't get the Supreme Court to change it, but it's kind of a, it gave me kind of a period victory. Well, I, I think uh, I think we see that uh, nowadays when the response uh, to conservatives or the response to argument from uh, from libertarians or conservatives is always almost always met with at home attacks. Exactly. <clears throat> Why address the issues when you can attack someone personally? And of course, that's Saul Alinsky was very much in favor of that. Right. The idea of t- you gain power by humiliating or making fun of your. Um, your your uh, uh, your opponents uh, don't address the issues. I mean, so Alinsky made it very plain not to address the issues. Yes, and uh, you've read so Alinsky. Oh, know. of course. And uh, so let's uh, let's get on with some other uh, interesting things you uh, have in the book. You spent a lot of time, and we'll do this after the break on positivism versus natural law. And we're now up against a break, and we'll be right back. Hi, this is Rocky Blair former four-time Super Bowl champion with the Pittsburgh Steelers and Vietnam veteran. As a board member, I'd like to talk to you about Warriors to Citizen, a nonprofit organization that helps American heroes, soldiers, police, fire, EMT, and their families recover from the psychological harm caused by career-induced stress. Over the last 20 years, broken relationships have been a major causal factor for the highest document divorce rate and resulting suicides in this population. This program, from Warriors to Citizen, is delivered free to families by professionals, all whom served in uniform and understand the needs to be addressed. I ask for your support. So please, go to our website, warriorstocitizen.org, and find out how you can help, either by making a donation or sharing this information with an American hero that you may know. And thank you. Hello, my name is Rick White, and I'm the director of the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. I want to encourage all Georgia veterans to consider being nominated to the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. And if you are a Georgia veteran, then the definition of a Georgia veteran is either you were born in the state of Georgia, or you've lived here 10 years, or you were raised your right hand and joined the military in this state, you are considered a Georgia veteran. For further information, go to www.gmbhof.org, or you can contact me at 678-427-0915. We'd love to have your nomination for the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. Thank you so much. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. 
You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. This is Professor Robert D'Agostino, back with Two Facts Matter, and my guest, Ellis Washington, the author of an interesting book. It's a short book, but it's a very interesting book called The Devil is in the Details. It was uh, uh, published in 1999, and it's Essays on Law, Race, Politics, and Religion. And it, despite the fact that it was published 22 years ago, it has quite a bit of relevance for today. Uh, all right, Ellis, I was, uh, we ended the first uh, sec- uh, segment of, of the show, and I raised the issue of law, uh, natural law, positive law. And, of course, uh, that brings up, of course, Oliver Wendell Holmes and a few others. Uh, what, what, uh, explain what positive law is as opposed to natural law. Sure. Uh, positive law, just briefly, is the law of the state. It means the law of man, the law of might makes right, the law basically of the jungle. It's Darwinist in conception and in application, as opposed to what natural law is, which is uh, integration of church and state. Positive law is a separation of church and state. So natural law is combining our founding fathers' veneration and admiration of the Bible, of Christianity, and applying those um, eternal precepts encapsulated in the Ten Commandments into their republic. Which brings up another book that you wrote about morality and separability of morality and law. Yes, yes, that was my third book, I believe. Uh, I think that was published in 2001. Yes, that was probably my most uh, academic work. And um, I wanted to have a a title that just said basically what natural law is, and it is the inseparability of law and morality. And so we see a lot of problems today, Professor D'Agostino, as we are in the 21st century here in the year 2021 problems that we're having, the, the upheaval, the race against race, philosophies against philosophy, Democrats against Republicans. We've always had that, but it seems to be reaching a, a critical mass right now. And I think a lot of that, Professor, is due to the fact that we've forgotten our original, the original intent of the constitutional framers, which was natural law. And Jefferson talked about it, where he said uh, the law of nature and of nature's God in the Declaration of Independence. That's natural law. And uh, but of course the the uh, left tells us that was not carried over to the Constitution. And in fact, the matter is, if you look at the Constitution as originally con- conceived of, it was really a structural document. It was really a procedural document. And I think it was the assumption was that the country would be based on the Natural Law Declaration of Independence. And the assumption was essentially underlined by by Christianity. Yes, uh, and uh, hadn't quite worked out that way, at least recently. It didn't. And where did the break happen? You, you, if you go back, uh, what's his name? Um, boy, I, I speak about him in the book. If, if maybe I can just take it real quick here. Sure. There was a. Let me just look in the. Um, oh yeah, in chapter seven, it's called. Uh, I do a. a uh, essay review of a book by David Barton. He's a very good scholar. If you get a chance to read, I think he has a, a website called uh, wallbuilders.com, I believe, David Barton. And so I, the book that I did was, uh, it's here is called The Myth of Separation. I'm sorry, 
what is the name of it? He changed the name of that book. Uh, Original Intent is the, the name of that he called it, but here was a, it was an earlier version of it that he he, he he called it something else. But the name of the book that I do the, the review of by David Barton is called Original Intent, and in that book. He quotes more than any other author that I've read, uh, just hundreds and hundreds of quotes by the founding fathers from George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. Um, yeah, Abraham, well, not the founding father, uh, George Washington, uh, Franklin, Madison, Jefferson, even people like Samuel Adams, all the way down, you know, later to the, to, uh, the Civil War era, with, with, uh, Abraham Lincoln and, and, and beyond. The constant, constant uh, light motif, so to speak, of keeping legality and morality forever inseparable. And he said, and and John Adams had a famous quote, and I'm just paraphrasing it, he said that our Constitution was written for moral and religious people, and it is wholly untenable for the ruling of any other type of people. In other words, the the Constitution was hotwired as part of our moral DNA, and Part of that it means that Christianity has to be integrated with the laws of the land. And if you try to separate Christianity from from the, the, the laws of the land, or if you try to separate legality from morality, as the progressives and the left have been successfully doing for the past 200-plus years, then you're going to have what we have now. You have chaos, you have societal upheaval, you have the, the rise of other uh, atheistic, uh, paganistic philosophies like Darwinism, like uh, Alinsky, like uh, the Hegelian dialectic based on... Um, uh, what is it? Uh, you have a, a problem, a reaction, and solution where they use that that formula to redefine what reality is. Yeah, I, I don't forget, uh, listeners, that Christianity, of course, is based on the two pillars: uh, Greek philosophy and the, and the Jewish faith, and. Uh, that's why we have so many of our, our current uh, defenders of Western civilization are Jewish. They understand uh, the, the basis of, of where we are now. They understand the, the importance of, of morality and law together. I, I, again, I'm Dennis Prager, David Horowitz, these are uh, Mark Levin. Uh, these are uh, leading thinkers in terms of uh, trying to bring the country to its senses. But let me get to, let me issue this question. Uh, Washington was a slaveholder. Jefferson was a slaveholder. And very often the left says, you know, they're tearing down statutes of, of Washington and Jefferson because they were slaveholders. Uh, and of course, the, the founder of the dem- modern, fa- the founder of the modern Democratic Party, Andrew uh, Jackson, was not only a slaveholder; he's just ch- slave trader. He actually uh, traded slaves uh, as commodities before he became president. Made a lot of money uh, flipping flipping slaves instead of flipping real estate. <laughs> and uh, he, yeah, he was. And, and not only that, he was a, 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 a rather cruel sl- slaveholder, but. Be it as it may, go back to the founders. Let's go back to Washington and Jefferson. They were slaveholders. So what do you mean that uh, natural law? What do you mean that they uh, <laughs> believe in that stuff? Right. Uh, what's, uh, what's your answer? 
Well, I'm not here as an apologist for slavery. Slavery was bad. Let me say that up front. It was immoral, and it needs to be, even though it exists right now, and you don't hear a lot of uh, complaints from the left now about the, I don't know, 20-plus countries, most of them in Africa, northern Africa, that are still slave you know, active. I mean, well, the rumors Mauritania has actually slave markets. Exactly. Also, Libya since the fall of uh, Gaddafi, who was very anti-slave, ironically. Yes. Yeah. Well, uh, uh, Hillary <laughs> got rid of him, right? So, so that that's to stabilize Libya. So everything since he he left. I mean, yeah, he was a, a dictator. He was yes. nasty, but. <laughs> He Is wasn't PC. Libya now? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, definitely not with the slave markets that meet regularly. And people have caught, caught those on film where they have the slave block like we had here in America back, you know, before the Civil War. So to answer your question, Professor D'Agostino, uh, uh, let me just quantify it because I know the left in their moral righteousness, uh, they always try to say, you know, to basically throw the baby out with the bathwater. Jefferson has slaves, Thomas Jefferson, uh, George Washington, uh, 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 Andrew Jackson, etc. So thus, and so their reasoning goes, and this is all Hegelian dialectic, which is all, you know, irrational BS philosophy, but this is their thinking that you, if they're the founding fathers were slaveholders, then that means the documents that they used to found this country are somehow illegitimate, which is throwing the baby out with the bathwater kind of philosophy. So I, I dismiss that kind of thinking. So let me go, before I address the more substantive points of your question, let me just say this. If you're going to denigrate Andrew Jackson, George Washington, uh, Thomas Jefferson, and all the other slaveholders from that period, even going back to uh, when the Pilgrims arrived in, in 1619 that had, I think, 19 slaves, the first slaves back then, you have to, and that was over a little over 400 years ago, you have to denigrate the original slaveholders, which were African, uh, rival African tribes that sold out their own people that they captured in little internecine battles that they had. Yes, Africans, long before the white man came, long before anybody came, they were fighting each other and enslaving each other. Well, the Roman Empire was a slave empire. Thank you. I mean, the answer is slavery has been with us forever, and it took the Brits to end the slave trade yes. on the high seas. What was that, in 1808 1809, or I believe. 1809? Yes. So, the, so the, the, it was, and they did it for religious reasons. Yes, they did. And they Wilberforce. Stayed, right. And then, and then and, 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 it was 1838 where the Brits uh, forbid slavery in all their overseas Yes, uh, uh, Yes, I think it was... I don't know why I'm thinking 1832, but somewhere in the 1830s, yeah. Whatever it was. Yes. But, uh, and by the way, uh, uh, just as a side, I I don't have any problem denigrating Andrew Jackson. Yes. He was not a founder, and he was a vicious uh, slaveholder and slave trader, and a lot of other things he did. He double-crossed the Cherokee Indians, for example. Yes, and the Trail of Tears. Right. Uh, Well, they were his allies, and he double-crossed them. He did, and that was wrong. But one thing he did do was he got rid of that second uh, Bank of uh, America. Thank goodness. He was uh, against the uh, Rothschild 
who I call the Rothschild Kanzarian Mafia, debt slavery system that they have successfully uh, enslaved virtually every nation on earth, nearly 200 nations over the last 250 yes. years. It's back in it's back in operation. Yes. Uh, well, anyway, get back to your point because I, yes. it was an interesting point to, to make. Thank you. So you have the Africans that were enslaving each other for centuries, okay? And then who came next? Uh, probably around the shortly after the founding of their religion in the seventh century, the nice Muslims. They were they had a slave trade that lasted for centuries, even to this day. They're the ones that are having slave uh, centers in Libya, in Mauritania, in Chad, in northern Nigeria, on and on and on. You can go to Google and look up nations that still have slavery. You don't hear a peep from the left, the progressive, the woke uh, Antifa, the woke BLM. You don't hear a peep because it doesn't fit with their agenda. They only want to denigrate Christian white males, and they want to hold them to this special standard, and they ignore the rest of history or rewrite history. As Mark says, the first battlefield is the rewriting of history, and that's what we let these leftist psychopaths do for years, giving them control of the academy and all of our institutions, but now things are slowly changing. People are getting woke. People are not. People are doing their own research, Professor, thank goodness, and a lot of people that have been just reflexively leftist or liberal are rethinking it and doing their own research, and they are coming to vastly different conclusions than the propaganda they've been fed with all of their lives. Well, of course, uh, you use woke in the original uh, yes. sense of, of, of black community because yes. that really comes from black community as, as awareness. Exactly. And I'm course, using a positive sense. Uh, right. And, and, of course, nowadays they use it in quite a different sense yes, sir. Uh, in, in terms of being woke. woke. Yes. Uh, and uh, I've talked on this show a number of times about how progressivism is a religion. I think the religion may be wokeism, which includes progressivism, yes. and among other things, because it's Marxist uh, in, at its core. Uh, but let's get back. By the way, you did uh, in passing refer to 1619. Uh, there's some scholarship that says they weren't slaves. They were indentured servants. Hmm. And they were, uh, in fact, uh, there's some uh, in- indication that uh, they were freed within a couple of years after they served uh, as indentured servants. So uh, th- there's a new book out by... Uh, uh, it's called 1620, and it's by a, a professor. I should have looked up before yeah. I came, came in here, but yes. uh, which is very interesting. So it puts the lie to the New York Times. Uh, 1619 Project. 1619 Projects, which, uh, uh, by the way, a lot of scholars have really taken apart. And you'll notice on the 1619 Project, there are virtually no footnotes. Yes. So there's no real research there. And probably no conservative scholars. No, of course not. And mm-hmm. and the 1620 book uh, that just came out, and I've ordered it, by the way, uh, is, and I'll read it, and when I after I've read it, we'll have a show on that, uh, is um, full of footnotes. It, it's very well uh, documented about what he says and doesn't say. So this is all baloney about this uh, This country is founded on slavery. That, that's nonsense. Uh, other thing is, as far as African slaves are concerned, 90-plus percent of them went to the Caribbean and Central and South America. Yes. The U.S. got about, what, 6 or 7 percent? Yeah, very low percentage. And, and that doesn't make it right, but the yes. point is it puts it in context. Yes. We weren't alone, that's for yes. sure. 
and we fought a war to get rid of it, and yes. that war cost a lot of lives, white and black lives. Yes. So uh, it, it ended there. And I'm kind of of the philosophy and, and the opinion. Look, you honor people for their positive contributions, and, and you recognize that a lot most people have negative contributions too. So Washington, by the way, Washington freed his slave at his death. Thank you. I was glad that you mentioned that. Was, you read in my mind. He died, I believe, in seven. I think in 1798, and he wrote in his will that his slaves would be free one year after his death. His wife actually had twice as many slaves. She came from a very wealthy family. She didn't want to let his slaves go. Uh, obviously, he must have told his slaves about their uh, imminent uh, freedom, and they threatened. They literally threatened her life. Then she relented and let the slaves go. But you never hear that. Also, Jefferson later let his slaves go by, that he had with the black woman, Sally Hemming. I think he had four children by her, and he, he freed them. Well, uh, we're up against the break. We'll be right back with uh, continue that thought. Hey, folks, this is Victor with the On Point with Victor show. Make sure you listen every Tuesday, 1 to 2, only right here on America's Web Radio, the On Point with Victor show. Remember, folks, I'm not angry. I'm just right. And you can find out why every Tuesday from 1 to 2, the On Point with Victor show, only right here on America's Web Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, join me, Roger B., every Tuesday at 1400 hours right here on America's Web Radio for the Locked and Loaded show. We will talk about guns, weapons, ammo, gun accessories, prepping, and so much more. So be sure to join us every Tuesday at 1400 or 2 p.m. for Locked and Loaded on America's Web Radio. Hello, my name is Rick White, and I'm the director of the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. I want to encourage all Georgia veterans to consider being nominated to the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. And if you are a Georgia veteran, and the definition of a Georgia veteran is either you were born in the state of Georgia, or you've lived there for 10 years, or you were raised your right hand and joined the military in this state, you are considered a Georgia veteran. For further information, go to www.gmbhof.org, or you can contact me at 678-427-0915. We'd love to have your nomination for the Georgia Military Veterans. Listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. This is Ro- Professor Robert D'Agostino, back with Do Facts Matter, and my guest, Ellis Washington. And we're talking about people should be honored for the contributions they make, and I'm not saying we should overlook their faults, but we should understand in them in context. And Jefferson did much for this country in his, in terms of uh, natural law, in terms of uh, setting the groundwork for the uh, future equality or the acceptance of equality. Uh, and, and Washington, of course, uh, was also anti-slavery, and he freed his slaves. And uh, a lot of the founders, I, let's talk about that, because uh, we also get this all this stuff about the three-fifths issue, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Oh, well, you know, the, the Constitution's a slave document. Uh, black folks are only worth three-fifths of what white folks are worth. Mm-hmm. Tell us about what that was really about. Yes, it was about uh, representation, uh, because... I, to get represent, representatives sent to uh, Congress, uh, each state had two senators, but in order to be more representative, uh, it was based on population. And so that would favor uh, the, the, con- the congressional candidates or, or, or the congressional members of Congress would favor bigger states. So, you know, states like New York would be kind of more, Pennsylvania would be more favored to have bigger populations than, say, like uh, Rhode Island or Delaware. But if all the blacks were counted, all the slaves were counted as one, 
than three-fifths, the South would get more members of the House of Representatives. So they were in favor, the Southern states, of full count. Right. And it's the Northern states that didn't want to count them because they didn't want the South to control the House of Representatives. But the way the Marxist uh, revisionist historian has rewritten history is to say, you see, this is the three-fifths clause. The white man, the the, the, the white Americans only saw blacks as three-fifths of a person because they they just thought of them as inhuman and secondary uh, status. And it's just the opposite. It was to dilute uh, Southern pro-slavery uh, representation in Congress. Yes, and, and I, I think you know, people, it's amazing how ignorant people are of history. I don't think they learn much of anything in college anymore. I, I kind of uh, half joke I, with, with some of my students, law students, say that uh, what, are the, uh, what did you um, males, what did you men major in college? Uh, my impression is you majored in football, drinking beer, and chasing women. And it always gets a kind of a smile because it's true. Didn't do anything yes. in college for four years. And uh, and how about you women? Well, one of the things you majored in is things you never thought about doing before, good and bad. And going to football games to make your boyfriends happy and then sizing them up for future possible uh, uh, mates. Uh, but... Uh, the, the what's going on in, in colleges obviously from what I see if my, my students in law school is not education. No, it's it's indoctrination and it reminds me professor of a meme that I recently posted on my Facebook page. By the way if you want to follow me on social media I have a pretty active uh, Facebook page just, just uh, search my name Ellis Washington and I'm the one, there's several Ellis Washingtons, but I'm the one that has the big American flag behind me and please friend me on Facebook. I would love to have you and I also have a, a blog, Ellis Washington Report. And, Professor, I'm glad to say that uh, the blog has been online now, I think, since 2010, 2009, and we have, uh, we're approaching 20 million views. So, just one one, one point that I wanted to say about your, your point, Professor, about how people just don't think. Uh, this meme that I posted says, uh, people, if you let people denigrate or take away your freedom of speech, you did not get an education, you got an indoctrination. And I thought that was right on the point, and it kind of ties in with what you were just saying. Well, also it ties in with the fact that just because someone is <coughs> credentialed doesn't mean they're educated. Absolutely. And a good example of that is a very intelligent president we had named Barack Obama, who is very well credentialed, but I don't think you can say he was educated. Not at all. And a lot of people, when I tell them, you know, I went to school with them, they ask me, do I remember him? I just have a vague shadow of him because, of course, he wasn't who he is now. He was just a guy. I think I remember, you know, playing intramural basketball. I had some friends in the law school. One of my, one of my, one of my best friends is actually a guy, Leon Bichet, who uh, actually convinced me to, to, go to, to go to law school, which, <laughs> in retrospect, was a big mistake. But anyway, that said, I think I remember uh, Obama playing him strategizing against him. He was, even back then, he was one-dimensional. He was a, a three-point shooter all the time. I was kind of a Charles Oakley kind of guy that was on the on, on the block down low. So we was playing a game against him, and one of the things that we did to, to beat them to move on in, in, in the championship game was we, we, we wanted to take away what he liked to do. So he just liked to sit back. He didn't want to get down and dirty, mix it up, pounding each other down low. He wanted to just stay out there like a little princess shooting threes all day, which he was actually pretty good at. So what we did was we just 
handicap a guy, say, don't check nobody. You just stay right here on the three-point line. And when he comes up, just get in his face. And we want to force him to get off that three-point line where I was waiting for him. And I'll have to tell you how that game turned out. Well, that's an interesting story. Of course, uh, uh, people who went for him uh, went to when he went to when he supposedly went to Columbia. Right. Uh, nobody, saw nobody saw him. And no one saw him. Yes. So, so you kind of wondered how he got the degree from Columbia. Maybe uh, uh, since the records, of course, are sealed, and you can't you can't access those records. Yes. Uh, who knows? But uh, people say they never saw him at Columbia. Exactly, and also who financed his Harvard education? We were word is coming out that. Was one of a uh, one of the Saudi princes, a, a big radical that has since been, you know, had his chain yanked. When the first trip that Trump took was to Saudi Arabia, and that wasn't because he was a big fan, he was doing some things to deconstruct the deep state. If you know what I'm talking about. Yes, I do. Uh, well, let's get back to some of the things uh, that you said. Uh, I want to get back to this uh, idea of. Uh, uh, su- the Supreme Court and how they how they look at cases and this natural law tradition, which is pretty well uh, dying. You know, basically this, the Constitution, except for certain certain areas of the Constitution, are dead letter. The non delegation clause seems to be a dead letter. The contracts clause is de- really a dead letter. Uh, the commerce clause has been stretched all out of uh, proportion. Yes, uh, and so. There are a lot of things that, and the Supreme Court finding constitutional rights to things like abortion. Is, is, yeah, is, the penumbra, the shadows. Yes, right, the penumbras and shadows. Uh, so, so what are they using as an interpretive um, measure for uh, the Supreme Court? What are they using? Well, that's a very good question. You know, and I hate to be a bearer of bad news, but there is some light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, this may sound cynical to a lot of people that have faith in the law and in. The Supreme Court, but I think that bubble has been broke with Roberts and how he dropped the ball with Trump trying to get justice for all of the vote fraud that was going on with the Dominion and Smartmatic voter machines. Now with the recount in Arizona, that's starting to change. But to get to answer your question directly, it's basically the left, the Marxists, the Democrats, whatever you want to call them, deep state, they have the law of the jungle. Is their Darwinists, their evolution atheists, their uh, eugenicists, their uh, Saul Alinsky? They believe in Machiavelli. The end justifies the mean. Okay, and so whatever the judge think is law, whatever conclusion he wants to reach, he will wrap the law mumbo-jumbo and presto-changeo to come to the conclusion he wants to reach, the Constitution be damned. That's basically what constitutional law is. That's what they learned from their patron saint, Oliver Wendell Holmes, 100 years ago. And I did an essay that did a 100-year survey of him, of his famous Harvard um, law uh, uh, Where does that essay? essay appear? Because I read yes. it and it was a really wonderful essay. Yes, yes. It was... Um, Thank you. It was it's published in the uh, the Faulkner Law Review in 1918, and it's basically uh, if I can see if I can remember the title. Uh, Justice Ol- uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes. Um, I'm sorry, 19, 19, 7, 19, 18, 1917 to 2017. 100 years of unnatural law of Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, and it's published in the Faulkner Law Review. 
Yeah, I, would, I uh, urge it on people. You can pick it up on the Internet. Yes. Yeah, yeah just put that title in. And I also have a, a, a PDF version of it on Ellis Washington Report. You just go to my blog and s- search under Oliver Wendell Holmes, and it'll pop right up. Oh, oh good. I, I, and I urge people to take a look at that uh, because it uh, was really great, a great article. Uh, and, of course, I, being a law professor, I have uh, some of my – colleagues are great uh, admirers of Oliver Wendell Holmes. Of course. So uh, I've done uh, battle with him uh, in, in, you know, in uh, de- polite debate. It's interesting, one of the professors who is, uh, is very left-wing in his voting, but he's very knowledgeable and he doesn't connect his knowledge with his vote. It's really interesting. We, we agree on so many things and then he goes and votes for ultra left-wing candidate. Right. I don't understand it. I don't understand what he's doing. Anyway, we're up against a break. Uh, After break, we'll be right back. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. Hi, this is Rocky Blair, former four-time Super Bowl champion with the Pittsburgh Steelers and Vietnam veteran. As a board member, I'd like to talk to you about Warriors to Citizen, a nonprofit organization that helps American heroes, soldiers, police, fire, EMT, and their families recover from the psychological harm caused by career-induced stress. Over the last 20 years, broken relationships have been a major causal factor for the highest document divorce rate and resulting suicides in this population. This program, from Warriors to Citizen, is delivered free to families by professionals, all whom served in uniform and understand the needs to be addressed. I ask for your support. So please, go to our website, warriorstocitizen.org, and find out how you can help, either by making a donation or sharing this information with an American hero that you may know. And thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, join me, Roger B., every Tuesday at 1400 hours right here on America's Web Radio for the Locked and Loaded Show. We will talk about guns, weapons, ammo, gun accessories, prepping, and so much more. So be sure to join us every Tuesday at 1400 or 2 p.m. for Locked and Loaded on America's Web Radio. This is America's Web Radio. Would you like to have a show, talk about your business, or express your opinion on America's Web Radio? Just email gm at americaswebradio.com and we'll get back to you. Thank you. This is Professor Robert D'Agostino back with Two Facts Matter and my guest Ellis Washington talking about uh, uh, some of the, his positions and his essays and the devil is in the details and uh, a book that if it's still available I, I urge, urge uh, even though it's 20 years old it's 22, 21 years old 22 years old Yeah, I checked the other day it's posted still on uh, Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com Oh, is it? Yes Oh, great Uh also, my other 10 books are on there, too, and also on my website. You can find links to my books, all 11 of them. 
I didn't write. I didn't realize you were eleven books. Yeah, <laughs> and over thirty law review articles. <laughs> like, well, I've read some of your law review yeah. articles. Mm-hmm. Of course, I two of you, I have two of your books: uh, the inseparability of morality and law, and yes. the devils in the details. But somehow I missed some of the other ones. Well, oh, you okay. did send me a third room, which I didn't read. Okay, that's okay. I gotta go. I gotta go get. I just wanted to let you out. know I wasn't busy being a bum for the last thirty years. Even <laughs> though I couldn't get a law professorship, I've been busy trying to positively affect the marketplace of ideas, to borrow a phrase from our friend Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes. Well, there's no way, uh, almost almost no way that a conservative can get a job as a law professor. It's almost impossible. Uh, and and uh, my son, who's a really uh, a, a, a scholar, first class, he's yes. published well, uh, including in the U- University of Virginia Law Review, wow. and uh, he's a really great professor. Uh, students really... Th- rate him tremendously high, but he's a conservative, and he's got lots of strikes. He's white, he's a male, he's a conservative, and he's a Christian. Wow, that's four strikes. Strike four. Yeah. And he's over 40, strike five. five. Wow. That that gives you five strikes. Yeah. And I, I tell him, I said, I said, he wants to get another job as a professor. He, he was a professor at Savannah Law School, and he wants to get another job as a professor. Yes. And I said, yeah, maybe in uh, South Korea. Yes. Try South Korea. It's unfortunate, but that's that's the way it is right now. Unless we have a revolution in in our government where we get these um these lefties out that are have been basically running running our our lives for hundreds of years behind the scenes, um, it's secret societies and other things like that. We have to have a revolution in order to to change. it. Now, you mean yes. by revolution? You you mean? Gunfire. I hope it doesn't get to that. It might take that. Uh, we're we're seeing that now in places like Israel with Hamas bombing and. Uh, yeah, but you know, but but that's of course uh, the Biden administration is right. funding it. Right. I mean, they gave two hundred thirty-five million bucks to the Palestinians, whereupon the Palestinians proceeded to go ahead and send fifteen hundred rockets into Israel. Yes. And, and we're going to give how many billions to Iran so that we can fund their terrorist group? Right. And 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 what does China do after? Biden's elected. They told Australia that we're going to bomb Australia. We're going to send the long-range missiles to Australia. If Australia uh, tries to help the United States defend Taiwan, that's also not only a warning to Australia, it's a warning to Taiwan. So the weakness of Biden is now pretty obvious to the whole world. And uh, and the strength of, of uh, by the way, the North Koreans are resuming missile tests. So the, the question is, Nobody pays attention. No one takes Biden seriously. Uh, and I, we didn't when he was a senator from Delaware. I mean, yes. come on. We used to call him the senator from Wilmington Trust. Right. And, uh, and and he, he, I, I used to I – one show, I, uh, I went through all the lies he's, he's told, and the plagiarism, the lies. Sure. Yeah. I marched with the civil rights people. No, he didn't. No one saw you. If right. you marched, no one, no one could find you at, uh, on the line. Mm-hmm. Right. I was arrested in South Africa trying to see Mandela. Well, no, Andrew Young was with you. He's the former mayor of Atlanta mm-hmm. and a well-known Democrat. He said he didn't recall that incident, mm-hmm. um, and he had a backtrack on that one. I got in endorsed by some union in Pennsylvania. No, no, they endorsed Trump. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
my my wife was killed by my first wife was killed in a drunk driver accident, drunk truck driver. No, he wasn't drunk. Your wife jumped in stop sign. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm, it, it doesn't it make just it goes better. On and on. It goes on and on. Yes. Uh, and how about the plagiarism when when he plagiarized the the uh, the, the life of Neil Canuck, who was running for Labor uh, right. Prime Minister, took his speech he took verbatim, his entire speech verbatim, and substituted his name for Neil's yes. name. Had nothing much to do with his life, but right. it sounded wonderful. By the but, way, he's a socialist in Britain. Yeah, but anyway, but he plagiarized the whole speech. Mm-hmm. And not only that, he was up for plagiarism when he was in law school. Exactly. And uh, his defense in law school uh, to the plagiarism charges, he was too stupid to know he was plagiarizing something. Well, that's about the only thing true. he said. That's about the only thing he said, truthfully. That's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's true. And, you know, so, I mean, and he's the president. Oh, my goodness. And then one other point, uh, show his uh, credentials about helping blacks. Well, when the first, uh, when the second black was nominated to the Supreme Court, who has been my mentor for 35 plus years, Justice Clarence Thomas, I actually discovered him uh, at, at re- reading in the law library at Harvard and I came across his, his famous uh, Howard Law Review article that is very excellent. If you, it was written in 1987. If anybody wants to go back that far and read some of the early scholarship of uh, Justice Thomas, it's just pure natural law all the way. But anyway, um, who was on the Judiciary, Senate Judiciary Committee that was going to uh, review the credentials of, of Clarence Thomas? None other than Joe Biden, who basically turned the whole thing into a, a circus, as Clarence Thomas rightly uh, said in his famous defense. You can find that on YouTube, where he basically called it a high-tech lynching that was oversaw by none other than uh, our current, quote-unquote, President Joe Biden. Okay, well, now we're up to the point is, what does the future hold? Where are we going from here? Is there a leader in the Republican Party or anywhere that could that could turn this thing around? Now, look, we all know that if the Democrats get H.R. 1 passed, that'll institutionalize fraud uh, in the voting uh, and institutionalize things like uh, mail-in ballots and, and uh, vote harvesting, which are both prone to tremendous fraud and also get... P- people who are totally ignorant, you know, voting the way people tell them to vote. Uh, And so we know H.R. 1 will institutionalize and it will be over. There's no way that the Republicans, for example, would ever take over the House, the Senate, or the presidency if that's passed. So the entire future of the country depends on Joe Manchin in uh, West Virginia and Sinema in in Arizona if they hold the firm. But uh, we'll see if they will or won't. So, so let's assume that's that's not passed. If it's passed, it's over. In terms of, we, there's no way a conservative, no way a Republican can get in, assuming the Republicans do anything right. Now, I, look, I, I'm not an admirer of the Republican Party. I'm an admirer of certain Republican politicians: Josh Hawley of Missouri, Tom Cotton of Arkansas, uh, Tim Scott of South Carolina, uh, Ted Cruz of Texas. These are very courageous people. Uh, and, and, and they stand for the right things. Rand Paul in, in uh, Kentucky. But uh, let's assume H.R. 1 isn't passed. What's our future? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go on a line. I hope that what I'm about to say doesn't nullify, you know, whatever 
the public's view is of me as being a conspiracy theorist or anything like that. But I'm going to I'm going to pull out something that maybe some of you might have heard in the in the ether. Uh, Professor uh, Diagostino and I talked about it just briefly before coming here. But I'm a big supporter of the Q movement. QAnon, QAnon, Q is the uh, military intelligence, a, a small cabal of people that are are loyal to Trump, and I believe that what we're watching with to answer your question more directly uh, with the people what we're going through the, the machinations the our military that's basically turned D.C. into a, a, a military state uh, Buckingham Palace is boarded up the Vatican is essentially boarded up what is it about these particularly three cities well number one they're all most people don't realize this Washington D.C. the city of London and the Vatican are all independent sovereign states that are separate from the countries that they're in. So Washington, D.C. is a totally separate country from America. Same with the Vatican, same with the city of London. When did that happen here in D.C.? I mean, yeah, in Washington, D.C. happened. A treasonous deal happened in 1871 called the D.C. Act. You can look this up on Wikipedia. D.C. Act of 1871, where they took the original republic of 1776 and turned the United States into all capital letters and made it a corporation. And that kind of makes sense with why we've been under this kind of like matrix existence for the last 150 years until Trump came. That's why they fought Trump so hard. He returned the cor- he, he dissolved the corporation being a businessman he understood about corporation and what they meant he dissolved that that's why you see the military in DC that's why it's on everything's fenced off that's why it's on lockdown that's why you're seeing these other nations being deconstructed before your very eyes the Vatican Buckingham Palace that's why when he went to see the Queen the Queen offered Trump to go before her you only do that if you're a superior person in, in stature to go before the queen. The queen always goes first. Why would she let Trump go first? Because she knew Trump had deconstructed Britain and all of their machinations keeping us basically in debt slavery under the Rothschild Kazarian Mafia, what I call them, for the last 150 years. But Trump returned that shortly before Biden became president. So that brings us to this question. What is Biden president of? In my view, and I wrote an article on this, uh, he's president of nothing. Well, what are we seeing then with him and Kamala walking around? Well, what are they doing? They're walking around. They're going in the planes. Sometimes Kamala Harris goes up the stairs to a plane, and they caught it, and there's no plane there. Uh, Biden is in so uh, Oval Office, but is it really the Oval Office? Because we look at um, DC, it's it's it. The lights go out at eleven every night or ten o'clock. Nobody's going in and up. We never see him going in to the White House. The White House that we see him at is, is a stage. It's Castle Rock. It's in Culver City, California, or it's in here in Atlanta. At, um, no, are you suggesting that Biden is not in Washington? No, he's not. I'm saying further. He's not president. He's president of nothing. Well, we all, we all understand that he's that he's he doesn't make the decisions. 
But I think it's a far-fetched to think that he's not in, actually in Washington. He's surrounded by people who are actually making the decisions and telling him what to do. And, of course, the point that you're making is that uh, you, we have a, a, a really a very influential and financially powerful cabal who really uh, has more influence on the world than people think. W- with that, the, the show is, is over, and I want to follow up on another show with you on, on some of these thoughts. Yes. Uh, and thank you for listening. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.